Welcome to the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is where accomplishment and harmony coexist. Now, here's your host and Spa Life curator, Diane Halfman. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is a lifestyle that accepts that accomplishment and harmony coexist. The spa and spa life, the SPA, is for seek power always, that power within you to do your greater and bigger work in the world. I am so inspired to have our next guest on the show, Susan Winterstein. In 2002, she founded Savvy Interiors, an interior design firm with its own general contractor's license. This talented, Fun-loving company caters to discerning clients across the SoCal region with award-winning service and innovative design. Susan is a straight-shooting, fast-paced, award-winning creative who's all about making a life of adventure. She balances her time as creative director and principal designer between San Diego with her husband, where they've raised five daughters, and their love for Incline Village, Lake Tahoe. In 2021, her nonprofit, Savvy Giving by Design has expanded into 15 states. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Diane. I appreciate it. Well, you know, when I look back here at what 19 years it's been, 2002, you know, that was such a turn pointing year. It was actually the year you and I met. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was, you know, a tragedy that had us, you know, come together as a community. A mutual friend of ours had her daughter kidnapped and murdered. That was a life-changing event. And, you know, people who I talked to and connected with back in that time, it feels like that was a turning point. For me, it was like life would never be the same, right? It was life is short. It's about making decisions. How is it? Was it coincidental that 2002 was when you started your business? How did that time impact your direction going forward? Uh, That's a really good question. There's no doubt it was very life-changing. And I think being in a role where we were certainly involved at a much higher level than the general public and the general community, being kind of having an inside window and glimpse into what that tragedy was like really gave us that inside feeling of how life can change on a dime and how life as you knew it had to be embraced. And so I don't think it's a complete coincidence. You know, it was probably a good year after that, that I really knew that I wanted to be involved um, both in the volunteer area, endeavored on some other volunteer things that we had worked on, and then also wanted something that was my own and in a way to give back that was joyful, you know, that was something that filled my soul and kind of added to the role of being a parent, but something that I wanted to do. And I really never set out to start a business in 2002. I mean, my business plan was basically to make enough money to to pay for a little convertible to drive around so I didn't have to drive my Suburban, which sounds so privileged looking back, but it really was. And I was very much a hobbyist you know, when I started this. And then over the years, it really just kind of grew into something that I, I never anticipated at the time. Yeah. I mean, I've been in your home, you know, different times where it's just like, it can, can change so quickly your taste and how uh, things, it's always comfortable, that cutting edge that you've had. And I've always admired that about who you are. In fact, one of the things that I had to laugh when I saw on your website where it said, nothing warms the heart like demolition day. (laughs) 
And I'd uh-huh. love for you to, to talk about that. Is that yeah. something that is uh, a little anxiety for the clients? You know, are you guys really excited or do you get them to a point where they're excited too? Because that's a change and it's, you know, not only in their physical space, but I think there's something about when you change your environment you know, whether you know it or not, it actually changes the way you live. There's something about your space and who you show up in that space and what that looks like. So can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think demo day is the most exciting day for a designer, especially when you enjoy construction or are passionate about construction like we are, you know, showing up on the day when all of their dreams and the plans and all of that design plan is is going to be executed and you've been staring in those ugly kitchen cabinets for years and you're ready for them to come out. And demolition typically goes so fast that it's immediate results. You know, it's instant gratification. So I think our clients are equally excited. I don't think they're nervous at all. I think just the adaptation to the change in their everyday life um, and the excitement and anticipation of that is really what they're looking forward to. I love that. Well, you guys have looked at each project, you talk about it being, you know, sophisticated and whimsy, but you also talk about a skosh of tough love. Where does tough love come into mm-hmm. when it comes into design? Well, I would say one of the things that makes us a little unique is that we're not afraid to confront what's not going to work, right? So I think the joke over the years has been when a client asks me for something that they want, and then I bluntly look at them and say, no, we're not doing that. And it's met with pure love and the intent is care and concern, but I tend to be a little bit more on the blunt side and I don't sugarcoat a lot of things. And so when I don't think that something should be done, I'm fairly straightforward and I don't kind of tippy toe around it. It's a blessing and a curse. You know, for some people, they really appreciate the bluntness and that little bit of tough love. And for others, I think a a kinder, more gentle approach may be better. But if you have come to work with me and you're a repeat client, then there are some clients that do know that I'm going to shoot straight and I'm going to tell them, no, we're not doing that. That's was a terrible idea. So (laughs) so, I actually appreciate that. You know, I think there's something about that, that bottom line. I think other people close to you may feel like, oh, sure, you can do whatever you want. It'll be fine. Yeah. But for someone to actually yeah. kind of toe the line and say, this is the deal, is it usually because it, it's not a good fit for their space or it's not in alignment with their design or is it unrealistic? What are some of the things that um, all of cause it, all that? Of the Yeah, I think all of the above. I think a lot of times there's a desire, you know, we'll often hear when you walk into a space, well, I want this to be a guest room. I want it to be an office. I want it to be a music room. I would like to have a big long credenza over here. And then I just look at them and say, okay, you've got a 10 by 12 room. Pick your top one thing that you want this room to focus on because it's hard to fit or cram too much into one space. And it's, we're not miracle workers and magicians, and we can't naturally make your slab not attention slab so that we can, you know, cut through it and move the toilet to the other side of the room. I mean, some of these things are just not going to happen. So I think, you know, it's always just being really honest with the client. And then from the aesthetic standpoint is, you know, you are paying a professional to tell you what they think based on your experience in seeing our portfolio or how we work or the designs that we produce, whether or not we think it's going to look good as well as function well. So the blend of the both the function and the form is really important to outline to a client and to let them know that, yes, this will work, no, this won't, or I don't think that that's a good idea and here is why. And sometimes it's hard to pinpoint the exact why. And I do my best to try to identify the parts of the design that may not work in their space. If they love a deep moody cabinet, but they get no natural light, 
then it's going to feel like a cave. And this is, you know, if you put a contrast here, it's going to look like a stripe. And anticipating what the end result is going to be because I can visualize it and only 10% of the population can visualize what a space is going to look like. And so I have that ability. I can tell you and look at a space and tell you what I think it'll look like if you try to do that. And I don't think it'll look well. So. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, you know, it's interesting because over you know the last year, people have probably spent more time in their home than ever uh, in terms of, you know, whether it was lockdown mm -hmm. or being with just their immediate family or whatever those things look like. How did that impact people's ideas for design, what they wanted to do? And what were people most interested in shifting in their space? Oh, we really had uh, two types of clients, clients that had put everything on hold because they were in lockdown and really didn't want anybody working in their homes. And then we had another type of client that was like, please come in here and fix this now. <laughs> like, I can't take it anymore. So, you know, it really just depended on the client. I would say most were in their primary living spaces. So most of the changes were in their kitchens and family room areas, wanting it to be more comfortable more functional for them now that they were home. Um, home offices, obviously, how to lay out an office, how to lay out their working space. Privacy and noise control was a big piece of it. They were all working at home. And so finding a space that was conducive to them working and then having that noise control and volume control and being able to close or put a door on an office so that they could work at the same time and not hear their husband in the other room or their child trying to homeschool those types of things. So it was really kind of a, the blend of all of that. Yeah, I, I totally get that. My daughter has uh, four children and trying to have them all on Zoom and everybody trying yeah. to concentrate on their own thing and their different levels of tech ability, you know, that really changed a lot of, of how people operated in their home and the amount of time they spent with their family. So um, I can yeah. just imagine that some of that tough love probably had to come in a lot while you were creating exactly. some of that. So, so speaking of visualization, I mean, that is definitely your gift and being able to look at it. How is it that you kind of consciously create like things in your own life as far as, you know, you talk about having a leap of faith, but also taking a calculated risk. How do you weigh those things in together? Well, if you ask anyone on our team, I think that it always comes down to some sort of a math equation for me, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that ultimately you know, I am a risk taker. I'm not afraid of failure. I fail all the time and I make mistakes all the time. And it's really what you do with them and how you change them and tweak them, but it's a calculated risk. So I'm not a risk taker when it it's driving hundred miles an hour on the, on the roads or standing on the cliffside and thinking nothing's going to happen to me. I'm very consciously aware of what the potential consequences are. And then I have to make an educated guess on if I'm willing to bear out the consequences of failure and what that looks like. So when I'm exploring different ideas or different things that I want to try or um, wanting to have the courage to try something that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, I'm okay with being uncomfortable for the short term. If I feel as though the end result is going to get me what I want, I'm willing to work hard to get it. And I'm not really worried about failing or falling on my face because I've done that so many times I'm okay picking myself up, but you know, as long as it's not self-destructive and as long as it's not intentionally trying to hurt others, I think taking risks is really important to precipitating change. Yeah. I love that. You know, it's funny. One of my favorite 
like quotes were about that the road to failure is actually on the road to success. That if you don't have enough failures, you're not pushing the envelope enough. You're not actually expanding. You're not actually seeing, well, what's possible and what can happen. So I love that aspect of it. Where does some of uh, potentially like some fears that come in? You talk about being able to slow down and maybe look at things from a, a perspective when it comes to fear. Can you elaborate about how you move through that a little bit more smoothly? I think the fear is, you know, would the consequence be something I would not be able to bear? You know, would it be something that pushed me a little too far? The fear of not being effective or the fear of not realizing a potential is probably, you know, some of the bigger fears and stressors that are kind of added to everyday life. What is our potential and are, are we reaching it? Are we pushing our own personal limits to a place where it's just uncomfortable enough, but not too much? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, in some ways, does it feel like you're running two companies between Savvy Interiors and then Savvy Giving by Design? How did that mm-hmm. come about and how do those work together? Uh, Safi Giving by Design started about almost seven years ago, and it happened with a local family whose child was diagnosed with a soft tissue cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma. And the joke in our family is I don't cook. And so they wanted to post a meal train on one of our pages. And I said, well, I'm not going to make a meal, but maybe she would like a new room or we can freshen up her space as she went through a year's worth of chemotherapy and radiation treatments. So When I did her room and went over there, I think I was more nervous presenting to her than I was with any client at this point because I didn't want to say no. I was willing to do whatever she wanted in her space. And our community really turned out in a grassroots effort. You know, I put the call out and we got over about $6,000 in donations in just a couple of days. And that was pretty powerful. And knowing that we could have an impact on this child's life is very addicting. So I did the first room, not really, again, intending to be a nonprofit. I think that's the same kind of feeling I had with my business. I didn't intend to be a big design firm someday. It just was through doing. And just like, you know, back in 2002, neither of us intended to be involved in the level that we were involved. It just happened by just taking it on and just doing it and not thinking too much about the bigger picture at that point. So After about a year of making over children's rooms, I did have a client approach me and saying that she wanted to help me become an official 501c3. And she actually put together a lot of the paperwork and the legal things that needed to happen for us to become an official nonprofit. And two years in, as we started to figure out what we were doing, we started with a pilot program out of Alabama to teach other designers what we were doing in San Diego to see if they could execute in their areas. And then now we've got about 15 chapters across the country where other designers are executing on our bylaws and operating under our group exemption and each have their own independent nonprofits that they're growing and reaching kids that I would never be able to reach. And so that's a very satisfying part of our business. What a great legacy and something where it has that that expanding feeling to be able to to go out and have that greater impact. So congratulations on that. Thank you. (laughs) So for your savvy giving by design, you know, that's been like a five to $10 million company growth. I mean, that's, that's a big growth. That's not just like a little thing that's happening here. What have been some of the challenges running that business as a woman? Are you talking about Savvy Giving by Design, the nonprofit? Or are you talking about Savvy Interiors? Actually, both. Because how is it that they're different in running them? And how's the impact been for you? Uh, well, the difference between a business is, you know, as the CEO and principal designer for Savvy Interiors, 
it's more like a traditional business, right? There's a structure. We all work together. I work with them. It's a for-profit business. Uh, with the nonprofit, um, it's a little different. It's run by a board of directors. So it's a corporation that is not owned by me. I am the president of that nonprofit, but I don't make all of the decisions solely like I would in our business. So the Savvy Giving by Design is very much collaborative. I help guide the direction of it, but I'm not responsible for, you know, ultimately approving or not approving, you know, a project or moving forward with something. And then we rely solely on 100% donations from the private sector to help support our mission and what we're doing. And so it's um, because it's not-for-profit. I'm very, very, very cautious with all of the monies that we raise because I have to stretch those dollars and make them last through as many children's makeovers as we can. So they're kind of two different. Uh, the similarities are that, you know, you're still running a business. A nonprofit is still a business and you can't run it into the ground. You can't spend all of the resources and you have to be very mindful of the direction that you're going and how you want to grow and hire people around you. And very similar to Savvy Interiors where, you know, I surround myself with people that have a skill set that is complementary to mine. I don't want to hire a whole bunch of people that are just like me. I want to hire people that are better than me, that have skills that I don't have, that can execute on things that are better than I could execute on and uh, work with them as a collaborative team. So all of those things together there, you can see some crossover, but you can also see some distinct differences. Hmm. So for Savvy Giving, Approximately how many projects a month do you do? You know, I would say we probably try to impact a family locally every eight weeks or so. Uh, COVID slowed us down quite a bit. And now with our material shortages and back orders and things like that, it's proved a little bit more challenging. So we're probably turning out rooms for families probably once a quarter or so. So we'll do the primary child's room and then we'll do a sibling space as well because we feel like they are such an integral part of the family and oftentimes they get forgotten in that family dynamic because all of the attention is on the identified child who is sick or going through a medical crisis. So we try to include the siblings in that. So a project might be one room or it might be three rooms, you know, depending on how many siblings they have. Right. And what are some of the criteria for a family to be chosen for that? Uh, usually it's a child that's facing a medical crisis, whether it's cancer, paralysis, a stroke, some sort of a, a tumor of some type. We like to try to catch kids that are early in their treatment um, where we can have an impact on their healing. So we'll often look at some of the things in the room that aren't working for them, solid surface floors, better lighting, good light control, window coverings, you know, removing all the allergens that are in the space. Some of our kids and their siblings may not have actual mattresses to sleep on. I've been in homes where there's been foam taped over plywood boards, no window coverings. They've had paper up in the windows. So it's really reaching a population that's probably our most vulnerable. They're not only struggling with a medical crisis, but a lot of times they may be low income as well. And so we're providing services that they normally wouldn't have access to, which is kind of a professional level of design by designers that can really serve and look at the function of the space and how it's working for them. Mm. You know, I'm feeling this sense of like, make a wish in your bedroom, right? It's like, I've seen some of the pictures of just when people walk into, you know, the rooms and just the joy, right? And just, you know, to have that infusion of loving your space and to feel special and to be heard. And I've heard some of the feedback of 
you know, oh, you heard me when I said I really wanted this part of the space or this type of thing. Or if they were a reader, there was like a reader nook or, you know, it really was mm-hmm. individual to that person. And, and I so, I love watching the unfolding of those stories. I, I'm, I'm in some of that, uh, I'm kind of a secret watcher <laughs> in, in some of the nice. groups <laughs> of what's yeah. going on. And it's always so warming to know that that, that impact is happening. So I love it. I love what you're doing. And I think it's great for for our listeners to be able to hear like there are so many different ways that you can make an impact. And when you really know what it is that is your strength and how can it actually have a, a greater impact in the world is such a, a wonderful thing. And I, I love seeing where, where you've taken it. Well, thank you. And we've also made a point of partnering up with Make-A-Wish. So we work with a lot with the Make-A-Wish chapters across the country where they'll fund the primary child space and we come in and do that child's room and then the siblings because they don't do sibling spaces. So one of the program initiatives we're working on right now that we're trying to launch is a pop-up designer program. So this would be kind of a Rolodex, if you will, or a collaboration with hundreds of designers across the country that are interested in giving back maybe once a year, once every couple of years, whatever they want to do, but kind of a contact list where we certify them to install the rooms the way that we would do them with some of the tenants around a healthy living area, you know, the things that we want to put in the floors and the organic sheets and all of our kind of guidelines that we have really in doing these rooms of what's worked for us. And then we partner them up with all the Make-A-Wish chapters across the country because Make-A-Wish chapters are all independent also like our chapters and we're run very similarly. So really kind of making those connections. And so hopefully that if there is a child where we don't have an official chapter, they can partner up with Make-A-Wish, they can request a room through Make-A-Wish, and then we can have a professional designer be on call to kind of come help and design it in the way that we feel is the most beneficial to that child and their healing. I love it. I love how comprehensive it is, right? And so it's not just looking at how you just walk in the room, but it's functional and it actually supports in their health as well, right? And, And to create that space of that. So speaking of spaces, one of the things I love to ask my guests is, you know, you have different experiences in your kitchen, your office, or your bedroom. What is your favorite room in your home and why? Gosh, my favorite room in my home. I would probably say our kitchen, just because I'm kind of obsessed with kitchens and kitchens are probably my favorite thing to design and making them a little bit different each time and pushing the envelope. So I probably like and enjoy my kitchen at my house now, even though I don't cook. I like looking at it because it's pretty. I also just had it photographed recently and I was telling the photographer that I had incorporated, I think there were seven total pieces that were my grandmother's that I had incorporated into the kitchen decor. And so I was seeing if she could pick out the seven pieces that I had. And I think what I love about the space is that although it's brand new and the cabinets are all new and the countertops and everything, having those sentimental pieces in there that remind me of my childhood or pieces that I've had throughout the years and looking at different things made it feel a little bit more special and like home. So even though things are new, it still brought a lot of comfort to see things that were brought from uh, generations ago and, and some of the joy that I've had packing them up and bringing them to each new house. So that was kind of fun. So I'm, I'm anxious to get all of those photos back. Nice. So what is your favorite item from your grandmother that you have incorporated in? Oh my gosh, I have so many. Well, throughout my house, but I would say there's a a piece of art. It's an old piece of art and it's probably not anything that anyone would pick out these days, but it was probably mid-century, mid-50s and was done by a French artist. And it has, it's colorful. 
has all kind of a, a cool color and uh, the figures are drawn kind of a mid-century way. And it had been sitting in my closet for the longest time from house to house and I hadn't really hung it, didn't have the right place for it. So I took it in and had it reframed in a really beautiful little thin walnut frame and then uh, had a place for a piece of art in our kitchen with an art light over it. And I just look at it and it just reminds me of my grandmother, reminds me of my dad, reminds me of the past houses we've lived in. And I just really enjoy having it in there. Ah, that is so great. Well, I know that our listeners are going to want to stay in contact with you. And how can they also, can they not only do that, but how can they also contribute to like Sassy Giving and to do donations? What are some of those things they can follow up on? Oh my gosh, so many great things. So I would say go to our website at SavvyInteriors.com, S-A-V-V-Y Interiors, and then follow us on Instagram, and then maybe even join our Insider page on Inside on Facebook, which is a little bit more behind the scenes and not as quite a curated photos for people to see, but a little bit more of the reality behind the scenes of design. I try to do a lot of education in that group and a lot of pieces on you know, colors and textures and progress and what your space is going to look like when it's demoed out so that we don't have this unrealistic view of HGTV of the before and afters happening in seven days, right? And then SavvyGivingByDesign.org. We also have a group page on Facebook. All the chapters have their own group page. And on those chapter pages, uh, we do a lot of fund and needs where we might do a call out for a pair of sheets or a lamp or a beanbag or whatever it might be for a room. And so we have a lot of opportunity for our followers and savvy givers to donate one of those items and have it sent to us so that we can place it in the room, which gives a really nice way to kind of contribute in a different way than financially, but you get to actually see the item placed in the room, which is always nice. So that's on our Savvy Giving by Design founding chapter page out of San Diego. And then there's might be a chapter in, you know, a listener's area that they want to join or they might know a local designer that might want to get involved. So I'd say lots of different social media channels to catch us. Love it. Love it so much. And, you know, in alignment with our theme this year about being a force for good, how are you being a force for good in the world? Well, I just hope to leave this planet better than when I left. Do my part to contribute a little bit more and pay it forward. So I think that's probably my philosophy on life. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing, you know, all of your insights and your journey. It's so great to see, you know, how it's expanded and how many people that it is impacting. That is truly a legacy that affects people's every single day and and who they are. So thank you for for all your being in the world. Awesome. Thank you, Diane. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you. Without you here, we can't get these positive messages out in the world. So please make sure that you subscribe and share and get it out there. If you have any questions for myself or Susan, make sure that you tag either one of us on there. We'd be happy to answer any questions and support you in any way that we can. Until we meet again, live your spa life. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Your host and spa life curator, Diane Halfman, wants you to know you can download her free guide to start living your spa life right now. Go to dianehalfman.com and click on the link for the nine secrets to step into your spa life. Now, live your spa life where accomplishment and harmony coexist.